0: Welcome to the World Shapers, conversations with science fiction and fantasy authors about the creative process. I'm your host, Edward Millett, and this episode's guest, J.G. Gardner. Welcome to, I think it's episode 136 of The World Shapers, the podcast where I talk to other science fiction and fantasy authors about the creative process. My name is Edward Willett. I am myself an author of science fiction and fantasy, and in fact, I have a new release. Uh, I went back and revised my debut novel, Soul Worm, which is a young adult uh, fantasy novel about uh, um, a priestess from a parallel world who finds herself inside the body of a uh, Earth teenager in uh, well, I decided to set it when it was written, so it's now in 1984 and uh she has to she she was sent by accident in pursuit of something called a soul worm which is not quite a demon but you could think of it like that, which escaped from her world into Earth, Wayburn, Saskatchewan in 1984 and uh she has to uh, somehow save the world even though she's literally just trapped inside the mind of this other teenager who doesn't even know she's there. Uh, that's the basic premise, um, and it goes on from there. She does wake up at some point and take over the body that she's sharing, and then things proceed from there. So that's Solar. Uh It was uh, my very first published novel. It was originally published by a, a company called Royal Fireworks Press, and uh, now it's out again some uh, 26 years since it first came out. It's almost a 25th anniversary edition. Uh, and it was shortlisted for a uh, best first book at the nineteen ninety seven saskatchewan book award, so that was that was a nice honor at the time and that was the beginning of my published uh, novels, which are now up to something over twenty so uh yeah, yeah, I'm very happy to have that out. You can find it uh uh, well, there's a there's a handy URL I'm working on, which uh, doesn't have a lot of links yet, but if you use uh, books to read numeral2read.com slash soulworm, you can find it, or you can go to Shadowpaw Press. Uh, Shadowpaw Press is my publishing company that published Soulworm. Uh, that's at shadowpawpress.com, or you can just go to Amazon and put in Soulworm. You'll see the original version there, I think. There's a couple of copies still floating around. Uh, but the new one has a brand new cover, and as I said, it's been revised a bit. So that's my latest. Check that out. My latest before that was The Tangled Stars from a New York publisher, Daw Books. That's uh, still available. That's an e-book and audio book and is a far-future humorous space opera with a talking cat who becomes a starship captain. <laughs> so uh, that one's out there as well. I mentioned Shadowpaw Press. One of the things that Shadowpaw Press publishes are the Shapers of Worlds books, which uh, feature authors who were guests on this podcast. Uh, three of them are out now, Shapers of Worlds Volume 1, 2, and 3, and Volume 4 will be out this fall. Uh, the Kickstarter succeeded in uh, March-April timeframe, and I've collected most of the stories at this point, and uh, I will uh, be uh, editing those and moving ahead with publication. That will be out this fall, along with two other new science fiction novels, uh, one called The Good Soldier by Nir Yeniv, Um And I'm looking forward to bringing that out. Think of it as Catch-22 in outer space or Catch-22 meets Starship Troopers is another way to look at it. And uh, then I also have a young adult uh, science fiction novel called The Headmasters from a Canadian author. Mark Morton will be coming out for Shadowpaw Press. And my other big news from Shadowpaw Press is that I've acquired rights to the last remaining unpublished novels by Dave Duncan, the late, great Dave Duncan, well-known fantasy author from Calgary. Uh, the Trader's Son, and Corridor to Nightmare. And those will be coming out probably early 2024 by the time I get those out. Uh, other science fiction stuff coming out from Shadowpaw Press includes uh, Lester Gedala's Empire of Kaz trilogy. And there's a collection of middle grade uh, scary stories called uh, uh, Canadian Shills, collectively, uh, from Governor General's Award winner Arthur Slade will be coming out soon as well. So I'm, I'm keeping busy on the publishing and on the writing side of science fiction And fantasy. Shadowpaw Press publishes other stuff, so please check out shadowpawpress.com. There's historical novels, there's poetry, there's nonfiction. Lots of uh, lots of great books uh, coming out through Shadowpaw Press. That's enough about me. Uh, Let's get on to this episode's guest, J.G. Gardner. J.G. Gardner has a Ph.D. in microbiology and is currently a researcher working on new ways to generate renewable energy using bacteria. While having published many technical papers on genetics and biochemistry, he has always wanted to write a novel about magic, wizards, and dragons. After the birth of his children, he was inspired to fulfill that dream and used spare moments on nights and weekends to write his debut high fantasy novel, The Path from Regret, published by Loyola University of Maryland's Apprentice House Press. So, Jeffrey, welcome to The World Shapers. Thank you for having me. I'm very excited for the chat today. I'm always... uh, Look for connections and we haven't met, but uh, this is not exactly a connection, but I did write a book called Genetics Demystified. Um, oh, okay. Which was- Well,
1: actually, I've got uh, two connections from uh, from listening from your, your previous uh, guests. So uh, you used to play Dungeons and Dragons and-, oh, and yes, I, did. <laughs> I I have as well. And also your wife is a professional engineer, as is mine.
0: Oh, well, there you go. Well- uh, In my case, being a freelance writer, marrying an engineer was a really great career move from an income point of view.
1: (laughs) (laughs) I just like it because you don't bring your work home with you. So we've got very diverse careers. So uh, we've got different perspectives, which is great.
0: Yeah, that's certainly true. Yeah, and on the genetics demystified book, uh, I know <laughs> I literally taught myself genetics in order to write a book for McGraw Hill on genetics. And if you'd asked me anything that's in the book, I would have to refer to it in order to <laughs> to talk about genetics. Other than maybe Mendel, I kind of remember the you know the Mendel's thing, but <laughs> other than that, and of course it's horribly out of date now because it was must be tw- fifteen twenty years ago now that I wrote it. So.
1: And it's a really exciting time for, for genetics and for, for kind of that biochemistry and, and microbiology research. So uh, there's some really neat stuff going on.
0: Well, let's uh, start with uh, your background. Um, where were you born? Where did you grow up? And how did you get started writing? And, uh, well, you probably started as a reader. <laughs> At least you would have learned to read before you started to write. <laughs> how did that all work for you?
1: Absolutely. So I was born and raised in a very small rural part of northern Wisconsin. And books and stories have always really been a part of my life. I've got a lot of early memories of my dad reading bedtime stories and my mom taking me to the public library. And early on reading, I always gravitated towards adventure stories and folk heroes. So uh, reading stories about Daniel Boone, Davy Crockett, uh, the fur trappers, the voyageurs of the Great Lakes regions. And for all of these stories, it was really the adventure and the survival, that I most gravitated towards. I found that very exciting. Uh, and so, not surprisingly, when I did try to start writing stories on my own, they were similar in, in style. These were adventure, survival type stories. And I think, like most young writers, they were all written about me in the mm-hmm. first person. And they all started out the same. They all started out with me camping or hiking in the woods. And I'd fall into a deep hole and I'd get stuck in some caverns. And then I would have to fight monsters and, and wild animals to escape. And, and my parents always give me a hard time now as I'm trying to um, write more professionally. They say, all of your stories start the same. You always fall in a hole. And <laughs> and so trying to get away from, from that. Um, and really the transition over to science fiction and fantasy came when I read Dragon's Blood by Jane Yolen, who I know was a previous guest of yours, mm-hmm. that book really kind of changed everything for me because it was, it blew my mind. It was both fantasy and science fiction. It had dragons and kind of a indentured servant caste system and low technology, but it also had spaceships and laser guns. And it was, it was, it just kind of blew my mind in, in terms of how incredible it was for for a story and it had a young protagonist and, and I was a young person at the time, and I read the entire trilogy and kept checking it out over and over again from the library, uh, up until the point where the librarians knew what I was bringing to the to the counter. <laughs> um, and so that's really my the start of science fiction and fantasy and then as a high school student, um I, I transitioned over to Star Wars and Dragonlance, and so the, all the Star Wars books that I read at the time now I think they're called Legends now that Disney owns the the IP. But read all of all of those Star Wars books, and then found uh, all the TSR books, so the Dragonlance, the Forgotten Realms. Margaret uh, Weiss, Tracy Hickman, read all of those, and at the time, you know, kind of being a moody and, and nerdy teenager, the the Wizards in those stories really kind of I gravitated towards as well. Uh, and so in terms of, of writing. I got my first rejection letter uh, when I was 11 years old. I tried to write a story for the magazine Highlights for Children, which is actually still around. Um, yeah, and, I at the, that one. and at the time, I don't I don't really remember it affecting me too much. It would be like, I wrote a cool story. It got rejected. The, the letter was you know, a very nice form letter, and I just kind of forgot about it. Uh, I didn't take the rejections um, as seriously until high school when I said, okay, reading these Dragonlance stories, this is amazing. I'm going to write about a cool wizard too. And then starting getting rejection letters from all of the usual suspects from uh, Asimov's, from the magazine of science fiction and fantasy, from Dragon Magazine, uh, Realms of Fantasy, and all of those uh, rejections I've got all stored away somewhere again. <laughs> like I think most writers do, they, they, they keep them because they can't get rid of them because that's kind of part of their writing journey. But uh, so kept trying and even a little bit into university I'd uh, still try to, to do that, but that kind of lessened uh, as I started to be more serious about my, my studies. And so uh, as a undergraduate, I went to the University of Wisconsin, and I had a double major of uh, microbiology and genetics. And my recreational reading lessened during that time, and my writing dropped off a little bit as well. Uh, and then when I decided to go to graduate school for a PhD in microbiology, my creative writing essentially stopped. It transitioned exclusively over to technical writing. And then I got a postdoc, and then I got a faculty position as an assistant professor. So I hadn't really written anything creative in 15 years. And then a couple of things changed. Uh, the first was I got tenure at my university so I could finally let off the gas a little bit for my academic career. And my first child was born. And I'm really lucky in that uh, as a university professor, my university offers paternity leave. And so I I took it and the the cyclical nature of infant childcare, there's a lot of downtime. And I found myself during baby naps and baby feedings to start to kind of thinking about my old stories again. And that led me to writing a couple notes down into my old notebook. And that turned into writing a couple paragraphs and I started stitching everything together and once I finally mentally committed to to writing, saying, hey, I've actually got enough here that I can write a full story, it was a matter of collecting the free time on nights and weekends, you know, page by page. And that actually finally became the first draft of what would become uh, the novel, The Path from Regret.
0: So it sounds like you were not somebody who was shy about sharing your writing back when you were a kid, um, if you were sending it out. <laughs> Did you share it with friends as well and, and get Shared it
1: sh- share it with friends, with frame with family, with, with teachers. So wasn't wasn't shy and um the feedback I got was was mostly kind of the benign, positive, you know, you're doing something creative, that's great. Um and I think that's why the first rejections didn't hit me that much because I didn't really know what it meant. And I think as I got older and was in high school and college and, and got the former rejections back and kind of realized, oh, this means that it didn't resonate with anyone and didn't really click enough for them to write a personalized response that I need to you know, focus a lot more on the craft to become better. And I had to kind of make a decision at that point, do I really want to focus on kind of creative endeavors or technical endeavors? Um, and I thought that career-wise, it would be better to, to focus on tech, technical endeavors first and the creative could come uh, later on. And so that's really kind of what has happened. But no, I've never been shy about sharing it um, because I, and I think that kind of comes from my, my technical background. You have to show your work. You have to get feedback. You have to get people saying this is good and this is this is bad, and this is how you make it better. And and for technical publications, that's the only way you're ever going to get it published, and, and it's much the same on the creative side as well.
0: I suppose you could think of creative writing groups writing groups, as a kind of peer review. <laughs> and, well, absolutely. I, I
1: agree 100% because they will give you uh, sometimes maybe – not as blunt a response as as kind of the the technical responses I get because those the, those peer reviews are often anonymous, um whereas a writing group you might know the the people you're working with so they might blunt the the sharp edge of the criticism a little bit, but I still agree absolutely getting that type of feedback is is
0: absolutely vital. did you have any formal writing training on the creative side along mm-hmm. in there anywhere no none so i I took the absolute minimum amount of
1: Humanities and social sciences when I was at university. All of my writing was on the technical side how to keep a lab notebook, how to write uh, a journal article, how to write a report. So, all of my, so I have a fair amount of of writing uh, instruction or education, but it's all on the technical side.
0: Do you think that that has benefited you though on the other side?
1: I think so. In terms of of structure or organization, I, I think in terms of for you know, if I'm writing a, a journal article, I know what are all of the pieces that need to be in place to write this this journal article for for a scientific publication, and I think that ports over a little bit. Saying okay, in, in order to have a story, I think these are the beats that need to be there. These are the structural components to set things up. So there's a discrete you know beginning, middle, end, and and there's a satisfying resolution so I, I think that knowing the parts is, has been very helpful
0: well we're sort of leading over into the main thrust of the podcast which is your creative process so maybe this is a good place uh, for you to give a synopsis of uh, your first novel
1: sure so the the path from regret really tells the story from the perspective of two characters there is Thorne and Carleon and Thorne is a, is a wizard that's, that's kind of going through a, a midlife crisis. And the idea is there is he has a number of really painful memories. He's made several mistakes. He's got lots of regrets, which is kind of where the, the title of the book comes from. And he's, he's finally ha- had enough of it. And he realizes that uh, his past relationships uh, allowed him to meet someone that actually had a, a unique power. And that power is to erase memories. And so part of the novel is, is having him decide, does he really want to wipe his mind clean uh, of these bad memories and trying to find this, this person. And Carleon, he is a, a disgraced knight and he's a fairly young man and he's got his own mistakes as well, but he is, uh, as, as I think most young men are, kind of stubborn and headstrong and think that they can uh, take the world on by themselves and is trying to solve his problems by himself and not making much headway. And eventually uh, a situation arises where both Thorne and Carleon have to work together. And some of the interpersonal conflict uh, of the book is where they, they kind of butt heads. Uh, but the main thrust of the, the book is uh, eventually Carlion who is working as a, as a mercenary now and no longer is a knight, is hired by Thorne to help track down another missing wizard. And it turns out that they uncover a conspiracy that might have been led by one of Thorne's old uh, rivals. And so the, the book is really kind of a, a chase, trying to chase down clues and then ultimately some of Thorne's old contacts. And intermixed through this chase is uh, Thorne and and trying to attempt to straighten out kind of their, their personal issues.
0: Does it start with the main character falling in a hole? Just it does ask. not. <laughs>
1: the, so so I'm, I'm a little ashamed to say the, that there, there is some falling in holes in this story, <laughs> but not right at the the start. So one of the one of the plot points is, is that as part of the conspiracy, um, the, the, the wizards that are, that are part of the conspiracy are trying to uh, create these portals that would allow people to uh, travel large expanses of distance across the continent. And so, at one important point in the story, Thorne accidentally uh, does fall into one of these these portals. And so, uh, my beta readers were saying, "Well, hey, he did fall into a hole. So it didn't happen right away, uh, but it did." And so, actually, for the the next project that I'm working on, I'm making sure there's absolutely no holes for anyone to fall into at all.
0: Well, if it's, if it's any consolation, I just uh, recently I had Julie Sureda on here and talking about uh, we were talking about our our books with each other, and her latest book is. Uh, Uh, has a a scene that the characters literally fall into a hole and then wander around in tunnels. So (laughs) it's not just you. And it seems like Dr. Who always has them in caverns and (laughs) holes and things. Um, So this is the old question. Where do you get your ideas? You wrote a lot of short stories when you were young and then this one. So what, you know, in general, what makes you think of a story that you would like to write? Where does that impetus come from? And specifically, the impetus for this book other than having read Dragonlance as a kid. <laughs>
1: <laughs> sure. So the, the ideas usually come from either an interesting image or I think what it would be an interesting conversation. Or, and really a lot of it comes from being dissatisfied with the, the books that I was reading. So I, again, I was going to talk to you about how I really like Dragonlance or, or Star Wars or you know any kind of, a, of the classics. Um, it really became a, a problem where I would read a book and As I became more critical of the reading or of the story saying, well, that character shouldn't have said that they should have said this or This action scene would have been so much more interesting if the characters had done X, Y, and Z. And so Those ideas, those kind of pockets of, well, this would have been a a more interesting conversation or this would have been some more interesting action. Those became kind of the seeds. The ideas for okay this could be a cool conversation or a point of conflict or this could be a cool action scene or this bit of magic or alchemy would be i think interesting to explore so i think the ideas came from finding the holes or i think what was missing from other stories and saying okay this is a kernel that i could build off of and that's really kind of the the writing for the path from regret it it started with a collection of of those scenes and so in my my writing notebook that's really what it is it's one or two sentences like here's a here's a cool idea or just unprompted a bit of dialogue between you know two kind of floating heads and and this conversation that they'd be having or description of some action or of some magical effects and then as I was looking through there I was thinking okay how could some of some of these be stitched together into a coherent story and so that's the ideas kind of came from those those places
0: uh that's a fairly you know I've, I've heard that from other authors that they wrote something in response to something they had read that they thought i could do that better or that story could be better if it was like this so that's a that's a fairly common thing at least in this field of writing i think and it and it, we often say that science fiction fantasy is a uh, genre, our genres in conversation with themselves, where you're bouncing off of what other people are doing all the time. And I meant to ask you, when you got into the academic side of thing, were you able to continue right uh, reading for leisure, uh, in this genre?
1: Yes, I, I was. So once, once I kind of things calmed down, I was uh, in terms of the intensity of the the workload, I was able to to read and and read quite a bit. And I think that. Um, in terms of, of thinking of, like, what are the the books that had a huge thumbprint on me? Um, the, the Pit Dragon trilogy from Jane Yolen was one, Margaret, Weiss, Tracy Hickman, Dragonland stuff. But then uh, as I um, got into graduate school, uh, I was introduced to Ian Banks and the, the Culture series. And so that was, I, or I think, a huge influence in me in terms of thinking big. Because all of the, the Culture books, um, they're about this kind of... Um, this collective of ai and different species but they're all kind of in anarchy in that they they want complete and total freedom so you can do anything you want and really anything is possible and uh faster than light travel is possible and and you're in a post-scarcity world so you're you're wanting for nothing so you can pretty much do whatever you want and if you have that amount of freedom what do you do how do you fill the hours and so um those types of stories i think were, were really really interesting and and um those, those types of kind of big space operas are what I like to, to read now. I don't read a whole lot of fantasy right now. That's what I like to write, but that's not necessarily what I like to read. I really like to read um, science fiction uh, types of stories. So things like Neil Asher, uh, the, the Skinner, and That Associated, uh, associated Universe, uh, William Gibson, kind of all the cyberpunk types of stuff. Those things I, I really like to read now.
0: You talked a little bit about uh, this coming together from these notes in your notebook, but overall, what did the the planning process look like once you realized you were going to write a novel? Did you do a a detailed synopsis or outline, or did you just kind of start?
1: So I am absolutely a a planner and an outliner, outliner, and again, this I think comes from my technical background. I need, to, I need to know what I want to say before I say it. So in, in terms of the path from regret, everything was very well planned out beforehand. And so what I mean by that is that I had uh, a full synopsis for each chapter before I started writing the actual book. And so for the, the whole thing, I had all of the major plot points, all of the major beats, the major conflict, and then perhaps, uh, like I was saying before, an interesting bit of dialogue or an interesting scene. So I had maybe three or four pages of, of single spaced notes for the entire synopsis. And that gave me the, the frame from which to, to build out this the story. So I knew where things were going, and I, and I really need to have that structure. Uh, because then I, I don't go off on tangents and then kind of end up in a place that either isn't interesting or I have to really loop back and it doesn't feel as important. So having that that organization helped me keep the, the focus tight where it needed to be. And so that's where kind of the, the planning or the or the plotter comes in. I know that people usually talk about being a plotter or a, a pantser, and I would say that I'm, I'm definitely in the, the plotter camp. But when I got down to actually writing the sentence by sentence, paragraph by paragraph, uh, text for the for the novel. It turned out that that's where the, kind of the serendipity occurred. Like for example, I knew that okay, they needed to get from point A to point B. I knew they were going to go on to a ship, and I knew I wanted there to be a storm. And so then the question becomes: All right, what is going to be interesting during you know with with the, those kind of parameters? How am I going to create something interesting? So that's where. Uh, I get to play a little bit. And so that's where, okay, I'll try this little dialogue tree and see where does that go? No, that's not very interesting. Well, I can take it back to, okay, they're starting here. We'll try this. Or, or this is a little bit of, of action that I think is interesting. How can I keep it contained To It has to be on the ship. You can't destroy the ship. Otherwise the story can't happen. So what is some interesting action that can happen in this small space? So I'd say overall, it, it really has to do with um, keeping to the, the, the structure which was largely invariant. And so uh, I know that some authors, they have their outline and they're very careful with their outline and then they start writing and immediately throw it away. Uh, That, at least for me, was not the case. I was able to stick pretty close to the outline and there was a couple deviations, but that was based off of reader feedback saying, this line or this path you're taking doesn't really work or it's not interesting or it's confusing, so you need to fix. So I would say that the course corrections I made were based off of readers saying that there was something that they didn't like.
0: I think in my case I have the a fairly detailed synopsis because recently I've been selling on the basis of a synopsis and then I write the book um, but I can't say I adhere to it slavishly I, I it's like I've worked out the story in the process of writing the synopsis and then it's just kind of in my head when I get started writing I don't refer to it very often. Do you keep it like in a separate document open on your desktop or printed it out or Sticky notes or <laughs>
1: <laughs> No, so it's it's and again I'm not sure if if what I do is, is unique or lots of people do this, but basically I write the synopsis out. So I again I start with this three to four pages of uh paragraphs and scenes and, and dialogue, then I make a copy of it, so then I've got the the clean original that I file away. But then from that actual synopsis, that's when I start building things out chapter by chapter. And again, I know some authors like to write the exciting parts first or the parts that are, they're most interested in first. So they might jump around and start with writing chapter seven first and then chapter 23 and then go back and, and backfill. Uh, for me, it was a lot more workmanlike and just started with chapter one and then just ground my way through each one. So went actually all the way through start to finish writing this and I didn't jump around.
0: So, it's like the synopsis is the starting document that you then build on.
1: Absolutely. So, yeah, like the skeleton
0: can... that's, that's there and you flesh it out.
1: Yeah, you're absolutely right. The, the, that, that synopsis is essentially version zero.
0: The uh, closest I know of that, and I, I mention him a lot because I'm struck by how detailed the planning he does, uh, Peter V. Brett, author of The Demon Cycle, when I interviewed him. Said that he writes 150-page outlines and then just fleshes them out. So that's the most extreme version of that <laughs> that approach that I've heard. <laughs> that's really in- intense.
1: I, I don't think that would be for me because I think that that would take a level of kind of focus and experience that that I don't have just yet. So I think that uh, and and again, I think having something that detailed, you really kind of you're writing the story and then you're writing a version so it sounds like in that case you know the 150 page outline might actually be version one and so when when he goes through it a second time that might just be version version two and he's kind of just filling into the, the stuff that he forgot
0: yeah i think that's and you know building it out from the bare bones to uh, character interactions and characterization and all that's and i wanted to ask you about characters do you do did you plan out your characters ahead of time you know figure out their backstories and all that or is some of that more organic as you write
1: for Thorin and Carleon, the, the two point of view characters, their perspectives and characteristics and personalities were fairly fixed in that uh, I knew who they were, I knew what they wanted, and I knew kind of the struggles they were going to get there. The The secondary characters, less so, that gave me a lot room, more room to play. So some of the, the secondary characters, the other mercenaries that uh, are part of the team, a lot of the wizards that are, are at the, the research institute that... Thornton calls home. Those characters uh, I, I did not have as well developed. I knew kind of mechanistically what their functions were in the story, but in terms of bringing them to life, that was a lot more organic. And so that also uh, came from some feedback from beta readers that I'm very grateful for, that they're saying these characters fell flat. They feel lifeless. They don't feel like real people. Uh, and in some cases, the my offense was so great. It's like I didn't even give them a name. They were just called the major domo, which would be the, you know, the the main servant of of the research institute where where Thor, you know, does does the bulk of his work, and so giving that person a name and a backstory and some of their own desires and and wants within this this research institute made them feel more real. So I think the for the secondary characters they came in not as fully developed as as the the main duo, and the feedback that I got helped create them and make them seem more,
0: more real and more interesting. Since you have a detailed uh, outline, were there any, did anything surprise you in the course of writing the book?
1: The, I think the, the ending surprised me a little bit. I knew how I wanted it to end and I had one vision of how it was going to end. And I thought it would, I guess the surprise was in the tone. The ending, stayed the same and so the the, the outcome in the synopsis was the, the same outcome as in the the finished manuscript but the tone of it was was different and so I had left it as a I had originally written it as a ambiguous tone not such a cliffhanger per se but more as a well you interpret whether this outcome was good or bad the reader was going to decide that and my editor said no, that's a terrible idea don't do that and uh, she told me that you need to actually pick a lane and she said the story will be more interesting and more um enjoyable if there is a firmer resolution and so mm-hmm. that's that's what i did so i i picked i picked a lane um and people have said it's, it's you know more of a darker uh tone but still satisfying
0: i don't remember the name of the book i don't remember too much of the book except that i was furious when I got to the end of it because the author had literally ended it with, uh, they were trying to get somewhere post-apocalyptic, you know, trying to get to, I think it was new Orleans or somewhere like that. Why new Orleans would be a good place to go post-apocalyptic. I'm not sure. But anyway, um, and uh, the the author literally ended it with and did they make it or not that's up for you to decide oh that's <laughs> no 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 that's not for me to decide that's for you to decide as the author so
1: that sounds like somebody that ran up against the deadline or couldn't think of an ending
0: themselves that's yeah, yeah
1: that's super frustrating it was
0: published but... it was a published novel but uh, that's the only thing I remember about it and how much I hated it
1: how much it made you yeah how angry it made you I got a feeling that's not the, the feedback that the author wants is probably it? not this you know the only thing I remember is I hated the ending because you made me do all the work
0: yeah they say There's no such thing as bad publicity, but I think that would be bad publicity. (laughs) Um, So um, was there any research to be done along here? You're writing fantasy. It's not like you're writing hard science fiction.
1: There was actually um, because I didn't have a lot of knowledge of ships. And so there's a good, not a good chunk, maybe a couple of chapters where uh, the characters are sailing. And so kind of maritime stuff. Even so basic as to, you know, ships go out with the tide and not with on the on a given hour of time. So, like, basic stuff, very, very ignorant on. So, I had to do a lot of research on kind of maritime stuff, ships, how to tie knots, what are all the sails called, the parts of the ship. So, I did a lot of research on uh, kind of boat type stuff.
0: <laughs> and uh, you've talked a little bit about you were writing in spare moments. It sounds like you could be fairly flexible. So, you just typing out on a laptop wherever you happened to be at the time?
1: Yes. And and the, my main writing was was on my laptop, but the, the place was different. So I guess in terms of kind of talking about space, this is something um, that I was hoping I'd be able to, to chat a little bit about because I in talking to previous guests uh, and, and even listening to um, your interviews with, with other folks, talking about the space always kind of thinks me, is, 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 is I think that's interesting. Uh, so for my space, it's either the couch in, in my downstairs living room or on, on my bed. And so it's just with a laptop and it's whenever I can find a bit of quiet. So when my kids are sleeping, all the work is done for the day and I can get a half an hour or an hour with really minimal distractions. That's, that's where I go. So, so the space, um, is, is kind of flexible, but the thing that's invariant for me is music. And so, this is something that I don't think a lot of your guests have, have mentioned in terms of their their process. For me, music is very important. I never for... think
0: to ask because I don't listen to anything when I write, unless well, it's just a black, um, blot out background sound.
1: Well, and that's good because that's what I wanted to, to find out from you. If you if you were writing to music, because I know some authors really need uh, to write to music, or they might listen to classical music or listen to a, uh, something that evokes the tone of um, whatever they're writing. For me, it's not, for me, it's more of kind of a, a, a consistent energy or a consistent sound to help focus. And so for, for me, I listen to almost exclusively instrumental music when I write and it's Mm -hmm. it's always there, but the type of music changes. So sometimes it's classical, sometimes it's lo fi hip hop that you can get on YouTube. Sometimes it's instrumental rock music where it's mostly just guitar, but there's no words. The words would be the distraction to me, but having that music kind of provides the energy for me to keep tapping on the the keyboard. So it doesn't matter where I am, location is not as important for me as to have something to listen to, to kind of feed off of.
0: Yeah, the only time I listen to music is if I'm in a coffee shop and there's somebody close to me who's talking a lot because the Mm. words, I can't help but listen to them and that interferes with my words. Uh, But then it's literally, and I usually use classical because it's instrumental, uh, but uh, it I literally don't remember what I've listened to, I and mean, it has no impact on the mood of the story or anything. It's, it, I would probably do just as well with noise canceling headphones. <laughs> it would probably be just as good. So yeah, but I and I, I never think to ask that for that very reason. But I know that there are, as you said, there's authors who like, well, on social media they'll put out their the playlist they were listening to while they wrote a specific scene and things like that. Not me, yeah, absolutely.
1: <laughs> and, and and you were saying, you know, you writing in, in coffee shops. So that sounds like something that you do. That'd be really hard for me because I think it'd be. I try to focus on on what I'm trying to write and I would smell the coffee and I would hear the conversation, the clink of the mugs and whatever music's piping through and people walking by in my periphery. And I think that would be, that would really be distraction. That'd just be kind of too much sensory overload for me. Um, I wouldn't be able to focus because I'd be interested to be like, oh, that smells good. What, what did that person just order or what does that conversation want? I just kind of eavesdrop a little bit. So having it be just in my house in in a quiet space with the headphones, that that allows me to, to get the words down, I think, in a much more efficient manner.
0: I actually prefer to write out of the house because in the house, there's lots of other things I get sidetracked into and it's easier. Okay, sure, I have internet wherever I am, but it somehow seems easier to not write when I'm at home than when I if I've gone out somewhere specifically to write. So everybody's different. That's what <laughs> yeah. this podcast shows for sure. <laughs> You'd also mentioned that you, um, you know, sometimes you, had, you, you would back up and and take another run at something if the conversation was going in the wrong direction or stuff. So do you do a lot of daily revision or is it more, get to the very end and then revise from the beginning?
1: It's that latter one. So it's, it's, there's definitely drafts and versions. And so because this, you know, I'm a novice writer and this is a debut novel. uh, I believe the revision count for the path for regret before my editor said, yep, you're good, I think was eight. Hmm. Um, And so it took eight full go rounds or, or eight full passes or, or editing sweeps before things looked um, okay. And again, some of that was on my own and some of that was um, editor driven. So it, it took quite a bit for the rough edges to get filed down. But no, I definitely go from start to finish. And again, I know some people like to work backwards or start in the middle and then work through. But for me, it's always start at the start, work your way all the way through to the end, Have the version number go up one and then cycle through again. So I I try to do everything in a complete set. Uh, For me, that's that it'd be too difficult to jump
0: around. Yeah, I start at the beginning and bash my way to the end and then go back and revise. That's the way I've always worked. Of course, back in typewriter days, that was pretty much the only way you could work without throwing away a lot of paper. But.
1: <laughs> well, I, I just shared my, my embarrassing story that this took eight versions to, to get done. Do you even remember, like your very first novel, how many iterations it took before things were good to go?
0: Uh, no, because uh, I tried to get published for 15 years before anything got published, so who knows? <laughs> <laughs> um, so we talked a little bit about revision. Um, you also mentioned that you do have beta readers, Uh, where do you, where did you find them and what kind of feedback do they provide for you?
1: So beta readers, um, were by and large, uh, uh, friends and colleagues. And the, the feedback that I got usually comes in the terms of, um, kind of character comments in terms of why did this character do this thing here and acted this way in this chapter. So inconsistencies or questions about character personalities or tones, um, a lot of times that is what they, they focused it on. On the story itself, most of the, the the readers were at least somewhat interested in science fiction and fantasy, more so they were interested in um, adventure or mystery or thriller types of stuff. And so the the actual kind of magic and the stuff that I thought was interesting and cared about, they really didn't focus in on, they focus more on the people, the characters. And so the comments they mostly got back were how to fix character problems.
0: How many uh, uh, beta readers did you have?
1: Uh, Three or four, I believe. So, and and so I'm not part of any formal group. And so I think that's one of the things that I would change um, for my next project is actually have a formal writing group with people all at the same stage doing the same thing. Because I think that I would get harsher criticism. Which would help propel things forward in a in a more
0: effective way. One of the, and I would suspect this would go to being an academic that's you're used to harsh criticism. Yes, yes. <laughs> and I, it's not going to phase you if somebody comes and says something about your precious story. <laughs>
1: and I think that's what a lot of the beta readers were afraid of is they wanted to put on the kid gloves and and you know, they didn't want to, destroy the, the the blood, sweat and tears of, of you know, months and months of, of effort. Um, but you're absolutely right. Being being an academic, I'm used to the bluntest, harshest uh, criticism. And so I've, I've built up a, actually a fairly tough skin. And and so I said, you know, don't, you don't have to be nice. You don't have to be, be uh, you know, complimentary for what you're saying. What did you really hate? Where were you bored? Where were you confused? And uh, a lot of people didn't, Believe me, um, but I think that the the critique groups trying to get into one of those, a good one, would would um, wouldn't have that problem, and I think that'd be really beneficial.
0: Well, and I think the the key thing there is a good one because there are good ones and there are bad ones. So, <laughs> do you have uh, some in the you know in your vicinity that you yes, could so possibly there- join?
1: Absolutely. So I'm in in the the Baltimore, DC area, and so there's there are several. There's, I would think, yeah. <laughs> yeah. There's a, there's a very uh, vibrant uh, science fiction and fantasy community in the Baltimore region, and so there's uh, several groups that are available. Now the the trick is, especially with everything moving online, is finding one that's taking new members. Mm-hmm. So,
0: I I belonged. I never belonged to one for two reasons. Well, no, that's not quite true. I belonged to one back in the, the days when you did. Um, you exchange manuscripts by snail mail, and that would just move too slow because it'd be you know four months before you got back somebody's comments on the story, and you, you've already finished it, moved on to something else. So that didn't work too great for me. Although I did meet a couple of really good other writers, and we all ended up published. So we, you know we did have a good group there. But uh, the only time <laughs> when I was growing up in a small town in Wayburn, Saskatchewan, and I've mentioned this before. The only writing group in town was elderly women writing about their depression era experiences. And I just didn't think they would appreciate my space opera. <laughs> <laughs> so I never, never had any sort of writing group. And I don't use beta readers for the same reason. I've just never, never gotten into that. I just write it. And then it goes to my editor. And that brings us to the next stage. <laughs> So uh, you had this book, what was the process of getting it published? Uh so I the
1: the publisher Apprentice House Press from um Loyola University Maryland is actually a very unique situation. And so it's not uh It's not
0: like, a, it's not a publisher I've heard of publishing fantasy before. That's for sure. No, it,
1: it they they publish predominantly literary fiction. And they they say that they are eclectic and they are certainly that because it is as far as I know and and what they advertise as as the only uh, undergraduate student run publishing house uh, in, the, in the country. So it is, uh, if you want to call it an independent press, you could call it that. If you want to call it an academic press, you could call it that. Because if you want to call it a, a training press or, or an educational press, you could call it all of those things because there are a handful of staff and professionals. But the, the editors and the cover designers and the copy editors, all of those are undergraduates taking publishing and marketing and uh, book career courses. So when I was saying my editor was telling me this, or my my copy editor was saying this, or, or the design editor was saying this for books, these were all undergraduate students that are learning how to do the work before they actually go and get hired by some big five companies. So it was a very unique experience in that, you know I'm learning to be a novel writer and they are learning to be novel editors. And so it's a very kind of symbiotic relationship where I'm working with them. And, and to me, again, as an academic, I really like that. So I, I could try to find an independent press or you know try to hit a home run with a with a big five and, and it would be very hands-off. It'd be I write the book and then um, edits come back and I fix the edits and it's very kind of black box-like. Uh, for, for this experience, there was a lot of communication between the editors. And I got a real feel of kind of what they were doing and when things were going to happen. So I really liked that feel. Uh, I got to actually put some input into the cover and the typeface and those types of things, which I know authors normally never get any input on. So uh, I feel very fortunate that I was able to find Apprentice House
0: uh, to take my book. That's interesting. I hadn't heard of it, but that's such a great idea for as a way to train people who want to go into publishing to, to have that opportunity.
1: The, the director of the program says it's, it's the absolute best on the job training or, or experience because most uh, university graduates, they, they try to get into editing or publishing and they say, well, okay, here's this portfolio that i made for some class. Whereas the, the students from Apprentice House, they can go in and say, here is the book that I helped publish. And you can go buy it on Amazon or bookshop.org or Barnes and Noble or wherever. And I actually made a product. Mm. And I think that's really, really powerful.
0: Interestingly enough, uh, in about three hours, I'm meeting with a local undergraduate who wants to talk about, who wants to get into publishing and wants to talk about it. So I'm going to have to mention this to her. Um, but that means you're working with very young people.
1: Well, so that's people in their their early 20s. So, I mean, these are all university undergraduates. So, yeah, so I guess... um, Younger
0: than you. Younger than me. (laughs) Yes,
1: younger than than me. But you know what? For the the courses they've taken and and the education they've got, they still have more experience than me in the field. Again, I'm coming in from the absolute ground floor, which is why I feel real fortunate to be able to talk to you because my name will be on that list with the Jane Yolins, with the Orson Scott Cards, with the Tad Williams. You know, you've you've interviewed uh, some incredible writers, and so how I was
0: able to sneak in there, um, I think is pretty great. Oh well, you caught my eye, so <laughs> <laughs> um, I was going to say on the young editor side. Uh, my shards of Excalibur book—the second one—never got published by the publisher that published the first one because they—it was one of the publishers I killed over the years, metaphorically. <laughs> they publish me and then die. I don't think it's my fault, but that's what it feels like sometimes. But she was very young, and I—you wouldn't have run into this in fantasy. But I made a reference to something. Um, oh, it was to Dallas, the TV show. And she said, what's Dallas other than a city in Texas? And I realized that first I was getting old (laughs) and second that she was absolutely right. It was a young adult book. And why would the kids know that reference either? They wouldn't make that reference. So, you know, in a way that was helpful. But you probably didn't run into that sort of thing, writing fantasy.
1: I I didn't. It it was more a question of um, the – so Carly is is a a younger character. So he's in his – you know early early to mid20s and so how he would react to, to situations was more the conversations you know how would someone you know that, that thinks they've got the, the the world by the tail how would they attack this problem versus someone that's kind of been ground down a little bit by by their their life and so trying to get that figured out was was more of the conversation not so much uh, you know like you're suggesting kind of cultural references or, or touchstones that um, are relevant to us but not to, to someone
0: in their their 20s so the book came out when? Uh, it will come out. It will come out. I'm still ahead of the game. I wasn't sure.
1: It, it will come out May uh, 2nd, 2023.
0: Well, let's see. Uh, I'd have to look, but it, it'll be pretty close here. So <laughs> uh, this will, will be out. I think this will be out. I can look it up. I'll look it up right now. That way I can say and everybody All right. will know. Um, just a quick look at my calendar here. This makes for fascinating uh, <laughs> podcast uh, stuff. <laughs> That I have you marked for. Yeah, you'll be out in May. At the moment, it's the end of May. That might move a little bit, but so it will, it will be out. The book is now out as you are listening to this. <laughs> um, so I won't ask you how it's been received because it hasn't been received yet. So
1: actually, I, I can talk about that a little bit. because do you have some reviews uh, ahead of time? I got some reviews ahead of time, so I know a lot of folks use NetGalley, yeah. um, but I went with BookSirens, um, which is a competing uh, service. But the um, the reviews coming in have been have been pretty good. So uh, people, I, it was interesting because the. Parts that people have said resonated with them were not the parts that I thought I put a lot of effort into, but I guess it, it they just kind of came out through the the writing. And so the reviews so far, people have said the parts that they liked had they all took place at the archive, at the, the the Magical Institute. That's kind of Florence home base. And so for me, those those scenes and those chapters really were more transitions. They were more, this is where the characters are going to take a breather and hang out for a little bit before they go and do their next part of the the chase. But the, the readers all seem to say that learning about the intricacies of the archive and the people who work there, why they work there, the training they go through, the types of um, research that they do the personalities of the people there that was what was interesting to them and so all of the reviews make some mention of saying the the authors training in academia really kind of shown through in those archive parts which i never intended to do that was never something i was trying to do it just seemed to kind of happen
0: well that is one of the uh, things you will find as the book gets out of the world is that readers take things from it that you they, there's a great story by uh, Isaac Asimov that I, I've told before, but uh, he uh, he went into a university class where they were teaching his classic story, Nightfall, and he listened to the professor tell the kids you know what was in the story and pontificate for a while. And then when it was over, he went up to the professor and he said, that was a very interesting class, but I'm Isaac Asimov and I wrote that story and I didn't put any of that stuff in there. And the professor said, well, I'm very glad to meet you. Just because you wrote the story, what makes you think you know what's in it? <laughs> 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 well, I suppose I've heard similar versions of that as well, where it's like once once you
1: publish a book, it's not yours anymore. No. So uh,
0: it feels like something you do yourself, but it's really collaborative with the reader. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, well, we're getting uh, closer to the end, so let's go to the big philosophical questions I warned you about. Yes, uh, which if you've listened to the podcast, you've heard. You've heard, and I keep <laughs> saying I'm going to put reverb on that big philosophical <laughs> questions. Um, and the first one is, like, ask everybody who writes is why? Why do you do this thing? Because it's, uh, you know, it's a lot of work and, yeah. And the second question is, why do you think anybody writes? Which, you know, uh, you're in uh, genetics and microbiology. Is there a genetic component to this, do you think? And then uh, the third question is, why why fantasy in your case specifically? So there's your three big questions.
1: Sure. So I'm actually going to answer the, the second one first because I think that fo- flows into my the, the my answer is for the first one. So why why do we write? And and I would say that we we write to either educate or to to entertain. And so I I think that you know the earliest stories you could think of the greek and roman norse pantheons you know explaining natural phenomenon why why is the world the way that it is you you tell stories to do that if you pick any religious text, they're full of parables and, and stories about you know these are the ways you should conduct yourself uh in in the world uh even aesop's fables like this is you know there's some, some morality or how you should be doing things so trying to help people learn uh, either about the world or about themselves or about the collective, you know, education. That's why we would tell stories. And so for That's kind of I think one big reason why we do it. And the second big reason I think we we as humans do it is is to entertain. So the idea is you want to to tell stories and 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 writing or telling stories is no different than painting a picture or composing some music. It's a creative endeavor and uh, that's one of the the hallmarks of being human you want to to create and make something new or something that feels personal or, or meaningful to you and so that's why why we want to do that and, and make something creative and and to get to the first question Why do I do it? Uh, I've got two reasons uh, though. The first is uh, Going back to something that I said uh, earlier on I wanted to create something, and and I really am passionate about science fiction and fantasy, and I thought, here's some interesting stories. Like, the groundwork has been laid with, you know, here's a, a downtrodden wizard. How does he pull himself up and fix things or make things worse? Uh, here's a, a knight that wants to, to do good, but he doesn't quite know how to do it. Those tropes are, are not unique, but how I tell that story or, or what flavor I give them, is the the creativity that I want to do I wanted to write the story that I wanted to read, and that's really where this this came from. I wanted to write the story that I always had always wanted to read what I considered the quote unquote perfect story, and I still haven't done that yet. I am very proud of the path from regret, but it's by no means a perfect story now that I read it again, you know a fourth, fifth sixth time, I always think mm, it would have been interesting if they would have not gone here but gone here instead so the the idea that uh, Leonardo da Vinci said art is never complete it is abandoned uh, mm-hmm. that's how I kind of feel is is that I could always make something better but the path from regret is its own story and then moving on to the next project so I wanted to be part of that creative process and tell tell a story that's the first reason and the second reason is I guess much more 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 personally and kind of more uh, cryptic in that I wanted to Leave a fingerprint on on the world you know as as small uh or insignificant as it is I wanted to have a book and I wanted to have an i s b n and I wanted to have uh, an l c c n uh, library congress number and I wanted it to be somewhere that there's proof that I was here and I did something creative. And it might be some of the reasons why I'm trying uh, to be prolific with my, my technical writing. I wanted to contribute to the body of knowledge and I wanted there to be something that someone can build off of and proof that I was here and I did, I did something. Uh, so that, that idea of legacy, I guess in, in some senses is, is another reason why um, writing and, and, and writing a novel uh, was important to me, and so to get to your third point in terms of you know why science fiction and fantasy, um, I think it's the the best set of genres, and and by best I've got finger quotes around that, uh, I think gives you the most latitude as a writer so uh I, I think of right now the mandalorian right that's essentially a space western so you've got the genre of western in there uh what's very popular now at least i know for for ebooks is paranormal romance so you've got vampires and werewolves and mummies and stuff like that but then the romance genre um i, I think that with science fiction fix you can have the literary fiction the intense emotional conflicts the kind of internal turmoil and, but then you can also have dragons and laser guns. Uh, so I think that science fiction and fantasy, really, you have the broadest canvas from which to paint your stories. And really, there's not a whole lot that isn't off limits. And I think that latitude or that freedom is really, really cool.
0: And what are you working on now?
1: So I am working on, I'm not going to call it a prequel, um, but it is essentially a story that takes place before the path from regret. There's a scene in the book where one of the secondary characters, a mercenary, he tells uh, what I think is a a rather sad story about uh, his past and how his wife was kidnapped uh, by uh, a wizard uh, that uh, wanted to use her for some nefarious means. Um, and the his quest to track her down and r- recover his wife. And so the story that I'm working on now is really a full telling of that story. And so it, it shares some common places and some common characters. And obviously the the same magic system as the path from regret, but there's lots of new additions as well. And the intent is it to be uh, read standalone and, and written independent. And so this is where I think the influence of Ian Banks's culture series come from. So he's, he wrote, he wrote uh, 10 books or so in the culture series and they share the same universe and the same tech. And there might be a character or two that overlaps, but each one is standalone and distinct, but collectively they are all in the shared same space. And that's really what I'm trying to, to do as well. Each story ideally could be read standalone, but they, they might have a couple threads that, connect between them, but they, they don't necessarily need to be read in a a certain order.
0: And where can people find out more about you?
1: So, uh, you can find me online, uh, at jaygardnerauthor.com, uh, for a number of professional and personal reading reasons. I don't have any social media at all. So you can find me, uh, right uh, there on that website, jaygardnerauthor.com.
0: Okay. Well, thanks uh, so much for being on. That was a a great uh, conversation. I hope you enjoyed it. Uh, very much so. Thank you very much for the opportunity. And best of luck. Uh, the the book will be out as people are listening to this. <laughs> so uh, best of luck with your first novel. Thank you. And thanks again to Jeffrey for that uh, great conversation. Hope you enjoyed it and uh, check out his novel, which is out now. So that's uh, the end of this episode of the World Shapers. Thanks uh, for listening. Again, you can find the World Shapers online at theworldshapers.com. You can find it on Twitter at the World Shapers, on Facebook at the World Shapers. You can find me online at edwardwillett.com. You can find me on Twitter at eWillett. You can find me on Instagram at edwardwillettauthor. You can find me on Facebook at edward.willett. And you can find me on YouTube at edwardwillett, where uh, you can walk along with me as I walk around my home city, Regina Saskatchewan that's the uh, there's other things on there but that's something I do on a regular basis is live stream my walks uh, here in Regina you can find my publishing company shadow press which has published uh, three anthologies so far featuring authors who were guests of this podcast with the fourth uh, in the works and uh, should be kickstarting a fifth one next spring which will feature Jeffrey Gardner potentially among other guests from this fifth year of it. Uh, Shadowpaw Press is at shadowpawpress.com. You can find it on Twitter at shadowpawpress, on Facebook at Shadowpaw Press, on Instagram at shadowpawpress, and on YouTube at Shadowpaw Press, I think. But there's nothing there much yet. That's one of those things on my long to-do list uh, of things to do. And uh, yeah, that kind of covers the basics. So uh, thanks again for uh, listening to this episode of the podcast, and I hope you'll come back Many times in the future as I continue to talk to the science fiction and fantasy authors who create the stories and the worlds and the characters that we enjoy so much. That's it for this episode. Bye for now.